Well, we want to welcome you to Spruce Grove Community Church. If you're visiting with us, we give you a special welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we've got some wonderful people here. At some point during the service, they'd love to talk to you, our ushers and people at the welcome team. Uh, if you have any questions after the service, please go talk to them. But we're glad you're with us. Now, everybody else, you regulars, we love you so much. And, of course, we're glad you're here. We get to honor our God. We get to worship him today. That's a good thing. Amen? Okay, I want to invite up this wonderful lady. Everybody knows Gail Weber, right? Come here, Gail. I mean, this lady right here is pretty much a walking testimony. And so we're in the middle of a conference. We've had meetings on Friday night, Saturday night, and, of course, this morning. And we've got Mark DuPont with us, which we're totally excited to hear what God's placed in his heart today. But, I mean, this lady is just a walking testimony. And once again, she's got a testimony for us uh, that took place last night. Why don't you share it? I have problems with my right rotor cuff, and I've actually had it for months. And uh, one night I spent uh, about 10 hours or so in the Miscorded Hospital because it was so inflamed I couldn't even move it at all. And he didn't want to wrap it up because he said that it'll do more damage and then you won't have use of it. So I suggested that I go to physical therapy, so I did. And the guy there, his name was Ben. And he looked like Ben Lodes. Yes, he does. And he sounded like Ben Lodes. And I told him, you know, I have to give you a hug because you're just like Ben Lodes. Do you know Ben? Do you know Ben? Yeah. So I said, I have to share with Ben. And to be honest with you, this is the first time I've been able to share with Ben because he's been so busy. I haven't even been able to talk to him. But anyway, and uh, so it got better. And I didn't go anymore because it cost money. So anyway, so I said, Lord, I need to have healing for my rotor cuff. So when Mark had announced that Mark DuPont was coming, I said, I have to be there. I have to go. I hope he calls it out. Well, he didn't. So yesterday afternoon, I said to the Lord, I said, Father, I pray that Mark will call out the right rotor cuff. And you know what? He did. And I, with my arm, I couldn't really go like this. And, and I couldn't go like this, like this, because it was so weak, it would just drop. So I just thank God because he heard my prayer. Thank you. I know everybody wants to give this lady a hug, eh? She just Give her a hug after the service. She's so awesome. Hard to let her go. I love this lady. You know what? Testimonies are to build our faith. But now the next part is up to you. You have a responsibility to draw closer to the Father. And let me tell you something. If you choose to do that today, you will not be let down. So let's stand back up to our feet. Father God, we thank you so much that we have the honor and the privilege of coming into the house of God. And today we choose you. We, know, we choose not to focus on our circumstances, our issues, our problems, and all the stuff. We say yes to you. And we say we are going to honor you, and we're going to worship you, and we're going to draw close to you in Jesus' name. And everybody say, amen. Let's worship him. There is power. You know... I'm aware of the fact that probably some of us in here 
we are, we are looking for deliverance and freedom ourselves. But you know, there's a kingdom principle of paying it forward. It's more blessed to give than receive. Now, I, there are people within the jurisdiction of this church in the region here that we are interceding for. Because what we're battling against, it's, it says in Second uh, Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. There is active demonic activity in our city that we can take authority over. You know, when Jesus walked, when he walked into places, he brought the authority of the kingdom of God. That's why people began to manifest. Demons began to cry out when he walked into rooms. This is the kind of authority that we're meant to exercise in our city. Now, I want you to turn around right now. We're going to sing this. I want you to point at those cameras. Because there's people watching now. They're going to be watching this week. They're going to be uh, looking at this. And they need, they need your faith. They need your deliverance. The army that's marching, the army that's rising up is us. Is us. Do you believe you have authority? Come on. Do you believe you have authority? So let's send something out over the airways as we sing this. I want you to picture people in depression. I want you to picture people under the cloud of witchcraft. I want you to picture people, maybe ones you know, and I want you to declare for them. I want you to release your faith for them in the name of Jesus. All right, turn back this way. Father, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We break every chain. Every chain in this room. Every curse. Every assault. Every sickness. Every disease. We break the power of witchcraft against the people of this church. Come on, let's lift up the name of Jesus. Let's exalt him. We're not here today as spectators. Lord, we glorify the name of Jesus. We glorify the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. 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 The name, the mighty name, the exalted name of Jesus. We release the name of Jesus that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. To the name of Jesus. Come on. To the name of Jesus. Sickness, you will bow to the name of Jesus. Discouragement. You will bow to the name of Jesus. Come on. We're not waiting for heaven to move. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside of you. The resurrection of Christ is inside of you. The name of Jesus. In 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 the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
Yeah. Bow. Come on, church, rise up. Rise up. To the name of Jesus. Bow. 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 Father, we declare today that where you go, I go. But more than that, where I go, you go. This is one of the mysteries that Mark was talking about, that Paul wrote about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That where he goes, I go. But where I go, he goes. Let that penetrate your heart today. Paul said it this way. He said, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. That means you have the authority to release what's inside of you. You don't have to wait for special permission. (laughs) The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside of you. And every place your foot will tread, he wants to give it to you. Every place your foot shall tread. Todd, I'm, I'm looking at you, and I'm saying to you today, in the name of Jesus, that you're out there where you are to put your foot on the ground, that there's a mantle on you, there's a calling on you to establish a sphere of the kingdom of God for your town. Because where you go, he goes. And where he goes, you go. Father, in the name of Jesus, let the revelation of Christ in us, the hope of glory, God, let it congeal. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, raise us up from the pit of doubt and timidity. Raise us up in Jesus' name from out un, from under that voice that condemning isolating disqualifying voice that says who are you in Jesus name in Jesus name it's the same accusation that came to David when he stepped on the field to face Goliath who are you even from David's own brothers who do you think you are I'm telling you, be released today. Be released. You are chosen before the foundations of the earth. He put his name inside of you. He said, you are mine. You are mine. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. His name will not be overcome. And when a people rise up, in the confidence, in the submission, in the humility of knowing that it is God who determined to put his spirit inside of you and through the church make known the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers. Through you, God determined to make known the wisdom of God to principalities and powers through you. Through you. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you, God. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. 
So it's been a real pleasure to have Mark uh, DuPont here. How many of you like him to come back sometime? Now, I'd, I'm going to get release him to, to, to say something about this, but he has some sense about some things that are possibly unfolding for this church, and we'll see if he says anything about it. If not, I'll mention it in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, but he is a prophet. He has prophetic gifts, uh, and I, he carries a lot of weight. I love what he's, what he's bringing for us. And uh, I want you this morning to just receive him fully. You know, can we put aside, you know, suspicions? Well, I don't know who he is. You know, let me be guarded. Let me be tentative about letting this guy in my heart. You know what? Just re- re- receive him today and release him to bring the full measure of what he has in his heart. Can we do that? Amen. Let's receive him. Good morning. Everybody alive? If you're dead, raise a hand and we'll pray for you first during the ministry time. Ah, no takers. Okay. Well, it's good to be with you. I really enjoyed the worship this morning. And I go to so many churches, different types of churches around the world. And uh, most of the churches I go to are pretty lively in worship. But it's, uh, I have to say, it's a little bit unusual to see some normal looking guys going for it, you know, and in a demonstrative way. Once in a while, you're at a church where the guys are going for it, but they look like they just got out of the psych ward or something. So <laughs> it's, it's great to be in a place where there's guys aggressively demonstrative worshiping the Lord, and they look like, hey, you know, I, I could sit down and have a cup of coffee or with that person, <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, uh, if you can't tell from my accent, I uh, never use the word A. Um, I'm not from Canada. I did live in Toronto for six years, and uh, we decided the line in the sand when we had to move back was when my uh, nine-year-old girl first began to use the word A. So that's it. We're out of here, you know. (laughs) But uh, I I travel extensively for many years now, many decades actually, around the globe, and I notice a lot of cultural differences uh, that are neither right nor wrong, just are. And in the United States, something I've, I've come to really observe and men spending so much time in different cultures, in the United States, we put this extreme focus on individuality, which is good in one sense, but it can be overboard. And then we lived in Canada for six years, and I realized the Canadians are a lot like the people of the United States. They celebrate individuality, but they tend to be more community-minded, which is a great thing. But I also do a lot of ministry in the UK and Europe, and my observation is that if you have the United States with this extreme focus on individuality and you have Canada, uh, England is another measure altogether where sometimes individuality is pushed down a little bit. It's all the group consensus and all of that, and things in the UK are just going crazy right now. Everybody's got to be politically correct or you get your head chopped off at the knees, you know. Uh, just an observation. But then you go from the UK to Europe, and they're even more community-minded, and it's a little bit frowned upon to be radically different, unless you're an artist at, uh, or a skater. But uh, then you go from there to Asia, and you can get in trouble if you really stand out in a crowd. And 
I think one of the things we miss a little bit, and this is one of the reasons why I think the gospel's moving the last 50 years so powerfully in the Asian nations as opposed to the Western world nations, is we really don't think uh, within the context of a family of what Christianity is all about. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. The thief came to rob, kill, and destroy. And so often we think about, okay, Jesus came to set me free. What do I want to do with that freedom? Well, that is a vital question to ask because God has a unique call upon each one of us. But it's in the coming together, but especially within the context of relationship with the person of God, that we really come into freedom. It's not being a lone ranger. It's not what do I want to do with the blessings of God, but in the context of laying down our lives. And uh, that just really got silent when I said that. So we won't go there, this message. I want to speak about the ultimate context God created us to live out of, and that is out of the Father's heart. Jesus modeled that continually, and today is Father's Day, so I want to uh, celebrate the ultimate Father. I, I love when it says in Ephesians that every single human being on earth has derived its name, meaning derived its origin, its very being, from the mind of God, the will of the Father. 1 John 3.1 says, Behold, and that word behold means take hold of this, examine this, know this. And First uh, John 3, 1 is something oftentimes I pray every morning. It's a little bit like waking up in the morning to look in the mirror in case you've forgotten how bad you look, you know. But behold what manner of love God has given us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. If you've given your life to Christ Jesus and you've been born again, you haven't just come into, you know, some citizenship where someday you're going to go to heaven, you can do your thing, but you've been born again into the family of God. And God's spirit within us is the spirit of sonship, and of course that includes the daughters as well. In the ancient culture, it was the oldest son in a family that would come into the double portion of the inheritance, and that's all of us, both male and female, in Christ Jesus. But behold what manner of love, the context of this thing called Christianity that God created us to walk in, it's being a son or daughter of God and knowing the reality of the Father's love. Everything Jesus did, he did to please the Father. And in fact, when we really examine, especially the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, John, and uh, and Paul, in many of their writings, referred to the Father as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus lived to please the Father, not out of a totalitarian authority type of thing, but out of just this love and honor of the Father, and realizing the Father had his best interest, even though it didn't always appear that way. John 17.3, John 17 is Jesus' very powerful prayer to the Father, and it begins with, John saying, this is eternal life, that, Father, they might know you and the Christ you have sent. And I wholeheartedly agree with something James Dobson from Focus on the Family said over 40 years ago. He said the greatest satanic warfare against the people in the Western world is to destroy the family unit. Because if individuals grow up without knowing either a father or a mother, and not just in name, 
but really deriving their security and significance from that relationship, everything begins to go south. I don't know the exact statistics uh, here in Canada, but in United States, in our federal penitentiaries, where we send the worst criminals, the worst offenders, over 73% of all the people in federal penitentiaries, especially men, grew up without a father. Over 73%. And even most secular psychiatrists and psychologists, although this is not politically correct to say it today, will say one of the most detrimental things in a child's life is to grow up without a father or without a mother. And this is exactly what God created us to exist in, out of the depths of the Father's love, to know the height, the width, the breadth of that through Jesus. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18, read like this in the ESV. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am with you. And David, prophetically, he's not drawing this from, you know, a good theological teacher somewhere. He's drawing this, I believe, from the heart of God. It's prophetic what he's writing, in a sense, is realizing that for the foundation the world began, God desired to create him. And God desired in the same way to create you. But God is a master chef. He's not a cookie cutter, you know. He's not a paint-by-numbers artist. Everything he does, he does with great intentionality. He created you to be a highly unique reflection of his goodness. And the good news is, if you get too unique, we do have counseling to help you out. I want to tell a story that happened uh, during the, the six years we were living in Toronto. It was in 1993 about a year before the revival broke out in our church in Toronto. And uh, before the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit began, um, I was still traveling a lot back then. But once a month, I would do a special Sunday night meeting for our church. And it would be a long time of celebration, and I would preach, and then we'd do a lot of ministry. And this is a story I didn't find out about until about three or four years ago. I was speaking at a church, and one of the associate pastor's wives got up and introduced me from one of the sessions, and she told this story because she was originally from our church in Toronto. Uh, Her name is AJ, and uh, I had never seen AJ before. At that time, we were not a a large church, a couple hundred people, and I knew most of the people, but we'd also get people from other churches for these once-a-month meetings. And uh, it was late in the meeting, the worship was over, I was already speaking, and there weren't that many seats open, just a few kind of like in the center, middle of the center section, and these two ladies walk in. One was AJ, about 22 years old, and I'd never seen her before, and another uh, middle-aged woman from our church who'd brought her along. And you know how it is, if you get there late and you have to kind of sit front and center, everybody's staring at you. Uh, They were a little bit embarrassed, but then I embarrassed the the younger woman even more. I stopped my message, and I pointed at her, and I said, young woman, what's your name? 
And everybody's now really looking at her, and she says, my name is AJ. And I said to her, well, AJ, this is what the Lord would say to you, that your dad is gone. Stop looking for him, but he's going to begin to teach you about his father's love for you. And by the way, if you're going to throw your life away, why not throw it in the hands of Jesus and see what he wants to do with it? At that point, she sat down, and I went back in the message, and she was told me in this testimony, and we've shot a video of this a couple of years ago, she was angry because she thought the woman who had invited her to the meeting had called me ahead of time and told me about her. This is AJ's story up until this point in time. At 22 years of age, she had actually tried to commit suicide three different times. The first time she tried to commit suicide, she was only seven years old. The word dysfunctional family was created for, for the phrase dysfunctional family was created for her family. Her father emotionally was never, ever there for the kids, and her mother was a raging alcoholic that couldn't do anything to take care of the kids. And so by 22 years of age, she is anorexic, she has severe insomnia, and she's suicidally depressed and just living, you know, with just complete hopelessness. And about six months before this night, she had walked into her father's office and found that her father had put a bullet through his head. And her mother was so dysfunctional that A.J. had to officially go with the police to the morgue to identify the body. And she even had to handle all the legal stuff. Her mother was just so incompetent. And A.J. even had to wash the, her father's blood off the wall in the office. And she began to have a break with reality at this point. And about a week before this meeting, she said she was walking in a shopping mall in downtown Toronto, just trying to, you know, she's living life like a zombie, just trying to zone out. And down at the other end of the mall, she thinks she sees her dad, who had killed himself six months before. And she went running down the, 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 the aisle of this mall, the hallway, this 22-year-old woman yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And, of course, to catch up with this man, it's not her father. Well, this is where she's at. And uh, when we began a ministry time, I invited her and some other people to come forward and get prayer. But she was so uptight, and she had never been in a meeting like that before. She refused to come forward. But later on, as we were praying for people in the crowd, she said, Mark, you walked down the aisle, and I was seated about three or four rows in. She said, I, I'd never heard of this. I'd never seen it. I couldn't understand what was happening. But all of a sudden, I felt this weight come upon me, this heaviness. We know that the word kabod in the Hebrew, it means the weight of God's presence. She said, I could not understand what was going on, but I found myself uncontrollably sliding out on my seat and laying on the floor. And what was even worse, she said, I could not stop laughing. I was laughing at the top of my lungs. And I'm thinking, good Lord, I'm in church, I'm laying on the floor, I'm laughing at the top of my lungs. And she thought, why aren't these people calling an ambulance for me? I need to be locked up in the psych ward. These people are crazy. But this is her testimony when she got up off the floor about 45 minutes later. She said, I have never suffered from depression ever again. My stomach, my eating disorder was gone. My insomnia was gone. A couple of years later, when we started a school of ministry, she went through that school. 
uh, became one of the uh, leaders in the school a few years later. Uh, she met a young guy that came from Scotland for the school, and they ended up getting married. And uh, today they have three wonderful kids, and they're associate pastors at a really great church in Tennessee. And they have, uh, she and her husband have preached on the Father Heart of God in over 20 nations. And here is a woman, suicidal, you know, having breaks with reality, anorexia, you know, the whole thing, insomnia. But that night, she had a revelation of the Father's love, and it changed everything in her life. And I'm not saying it was instantaneous. She had to go on and go through the discipleship and got a lot of ministry and the church and the ministry schools that went on. But she came into the plan of God for her life, and she is uh, one of the healthiest person I know. You know, um, Chris said something that, that, that is so true earlier on in the meeting. He said, we've all got issues. We've all got problems. I was just thinking about that church in Tennessee. Uh, I was there about a year ago. I was speaking in a, in a session and prophesying over people. And, you know, we live in this very superficial culture that we judge people by outward appearances, and it just puts so many people into a death trap trying to appear and maintain a certain image or achieve a certain image. But also, you know, we think of what God said to Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God always looks at the heart. I was uh, praying over people, and the Lord was healing people, and we were, I was doing prophecy and things. And there was this woman about 35, and... Um, she was a lady that she looked literally like she had just stepped off the cover of a fashion magazine. Every hair was perfectly in place. The makeup was just impeccable, dressed in a very expensive, sophisticated outfit. In point of fact, when she gave her testimony the next day, she used to be a beauty queen. She was Miss Tennessee, you know, about 10, 15 years prior to this. And to look at her, you would think, wow, there's someone that's really got it together, probably very popular, successful, all this sort of thing. But when the Lord uh, pointed her out to me and had me prophesy over her, I, I said to her, you live in a great fear that what your parents did to you, you're going to go on as doing as well, and it's ruining your life. And I said, I break that fear, and I bless you to know that Jesus is calling you into freedom. And she just collapsed on the floor. And I don't know whether it's from the power of the Holy Spirit or just the emotions just rising up within her. And she was just sobbing and sobbing on the floor. Well, the next day she testified and she said, I've been, you know, married for about 10 years now. And a lot of people look at my husband and I and think we have this picture-perfect life. But she said, I've been lying to my husband because my husband desperately wants kids. And I've been lying, saying I'm physically unable to have kids. She says, I can have kids. But she said, I was mistreated by both my father and my mother growing up. And I've been living in this fear that if I ever have kids, I would do to them what they did to me. And God broke that that night. And I tell you this story because we, 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 we have such a superficial view of things sometimes. We're all messed up to a degree. It's just that some of our messes are more apparent until you really get to know a person. But David lived out of this revelation that he'd come from the heart of God, and that even he was in his mother's womb, so to speak, not just physically, but the personality, the care, the intention of the Father was upon him. If you've got your Bible, turn, if you would, to Second Samuel 
13. I want to briefly relate one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, and uh, then we'll move on after that, just so we don't camp out there forever. But 2 Samuel chapter 13, David is now the king, and there's a royal palace, and he's got several wives, and he's got many sons and daughters. And I'm not going to read all of it, but 2 Samuel 13, as I said, contains one of the saddest stories you'll find in the whole Bible. And it has the story of one of David's sons uh, by the name of Amon, who violated one of his sisters by the name of Tamar. And it says that, again, I'm not going to read all this, but Ammon was tormented. It says he loved his sister in a wrongful way. It wasn't love. It was lust of the worst sort. And he tried to find a way that he could manipulate the situation, be alone with her to violate her. And this friend of his came up with the scheme, well, pretend that you're sick, and the only thing that's going to really make you well is for your sister to make some uh, bread for you, some cakes and things, and have her bring them. So they did that, and she made some bread, some cakes, and brought it to his chambers, and then he had everybody leave, and she's there alone, and he did the worst sort of thing possible. He violated her. But then it says in verse 11 that uh, when he took hold of her, he said, no, don't, don't do this. It's such a terrible thing, but he would not listen, and he overpowered her. But then it says in verse 15, Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love. And again, we know it's not really love, but which he had loved her. And isn't that the truth about sin? There's always a deception of sin that says you've got to do this, you've got to have it, it's going to bring fulfillment. But as soon as you you commit it, you find you're just going deeper and deeper into bondage and misery. And so he hated her more than he had thought that he loved her. And he cast her out, and she refused to go and said, no, don't do this because it's worse than what you've already done. But he called for one of his servants, and they cast her out. And it says in verse 18, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and locked the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And one of her other brothers, her brother Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Meaning, has he done this terrible thing? And he said to her, Now just hold your peace, my sister, for he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. And then it says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And it goes on to say, She never returned. She never returned to the father's palace. She's in the palace, but that relationship was broken off because of what began to take place in her life. Sin, as I said, it always betrays. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly, but the devil came to rob, kill, and destroy. We're all aware the last 15 years, 20 years or so, of the modern uh, crime of identity theft where, you know, someone steals your credit card information or social security number or whatever it may be, and they use your identity to get hold of things and maybe drain your bank account or charge things to your credit card, whatever it may be. 
But there's been an identity theft that's been happening for thousands of years and it's still going on today. There's actually worse than losing money or being ripped off. It is to not really know who we are in Christ Jesus. And I'm not just talking about those that are outside the church or those that don't know Jesus, but even in the church, I often see strongholds of what can be called the orphan spirit. When I teach on the orphan spirit, contrasting that between sonship and Christ Jesus, I have people hold their hands out in a fist because this is symbolic of the orphan spirit, that whatever you have, whatever money or resources or abilities or time or opportunities, the orphan will cling tight to that because they're afraid that if they give what they have away, there'll be nothing to take its place. Jesus, in contrast, he always lived open-handed, that he always lived out of the Father's love, and he always lived out of the Father's provision in the context of that love. And so, in fact, he said the disciples, freely, freely you've received, freely, freely give. And he taught them how to live out of the spirit of sonship, not as orphans. But the other thing about the orphan spirit <clears throat> that I often see manifesting Christians is having to do with the fist is what we call the fight or flight syndrome. And we see Jesus, when he lived open-handed, even when he was on the cross, his hands were open and he extended forgiveness <clears throat> to people who had condemned him falsely, who had betrayed him, to have falsely accused him. He hung on the cross with open arms and open hands and said, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. But with the orphan spirit, because it's bound in insecurity and fear, when there's conflict, rather than open-handed embracing and saying, let's work through the situation, let's come together in love and friendship and talk it through, it's the fight-or-flight syndrome. And we even, unfortunately, see this sometimes in the body of Christ. Not this church. I'm talking about the one down the road right now. But there's conflict with churches. Some Christians are just so quick to leave a home group or quick to leave a church when there's conflict rather than working things out in the peace and love of God. But also the flight, just running off and getting aggressive and all of that. And that's the betrayal of sin. And it says in verse 18 and 19 that Tamar poured ashes on her head but she also tore her garments that the king's daughters, the virgins, wore that was symbolic of her purity. Some of us have had our innocence, like with Tamar, taken from us. And that's what happens when a child is abused like that, or even later on with a young woman or sometimes a young man, when they're seduced into something they shouldn't have been seduced into, obviously. Their innocence is taken away from them but sometimes of our own volition, choosing to be involved in things, we have given our innocence away. Oh, thank you very much. Isn't she a servant? I think you're going to have to repent to the guy about the hairstyling joke, though. That's, that was cold. That was cold. <laughs> but anyway, what are we talking about? Innocence. How do we think about innocence? How do we think about when it says in Revelation that the angels are surrounding the throne of God are continually crying out, holy, holy, holy. Is that just a legal term meaning sin or no sin? No, no, no. It means something much more than that, much deeper than that. 
It means to be completely unspoiled, to be completely without pollution, to be completely pure. There's a word we use, pristine, meaning things in their original, natural, beautiful condition. You have mountain areas in Canada, and you have wooded areas that are exactly like they were, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago. I grew up in Southern California. I spent a lot of time in my summers at, at the beach in California and surfing and hanging out there. And as I've traveled around the world, I've, I've been, had the opportunity to go to a lot of different beaches. And although California, Southern California, particularly San Diego, has some incredibly beautiful beaches, there's been about 20, 30, 50 billion people have been there and trodden those paths before you. So there's trash cans, there's paths, there's garbage, there, you know, there's McDonald's, there's Dairy Queens, there's everything. But I remember one time when I was ministering in a, in a church conference north of the Arctic Circle in Norway. Unfortunately, it was the summertime. My mother didn't raise any fools. Uh, we had a free afternoon, and they said, we want to take you a little bit of sightseeing. And so they drove me to uh, a narrow fjord, and that's where you have mountains on both sides with an inlet of water coming in. And the fjords were just so majestic, these high mountain cliffs on either side. But what really struck me was there was a small narrow bay that was actually a beach, and it was black kind of deep brownish sand. And there were no trails there. There were no McDonald's. There were no ice cream stands. There was no trash. There was no pollution and I looked at this beautiful beach, and I thought, this beach is exactly like it was thousands and thousands of years ago. It's in a pristine condition. I was uh, <coughs> ministering in a church in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, and the pastor there was a runner. He knew I was a runner. He said, well, where do you like to run? I said, I'd like to run on trails rather than streets and at the beach, if that's possible. So he said, I know where to take you. So he took me, and we wound down through the car, through this kind of dirt road, and we came to this rather remote beach. And we ran for several miles down and then back up. But this beach was unique that it had these very, very, very high sand dunes. It went 30, 40 feet up, and it just went for miles and miles and miles. And again, there's no ice cream stand. There's no paths. There's no garbage. There's not even trash cans because hardly anybody ever went there. And it was so incredible to be there and run there because I realized this looked exactly like it did hundreds, thousands of years ago. It was in a pristine condition. And with God, when the angels are singing and celebrating, holy, 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 they're not just talking in a, in a legal sense, there's an absence of sin, but God is absolutely pure in his love, actually absolutely pure in his kindness, his good intentions, and his beauty. There's no mar. There's no pollution whatsoever. God and everything about the kingdom is in a pristine condition. And God's will for you, as a phrase a friend of mine came up with, he wants to repristinate you and I. I love what it says in Psalm 149 in the New American Standard of the Bible. It says, God beautifies the afflicted ones with salvation. And the reason I say this is the saddest story, one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, is not only because of the rape that took place, which is obviously just very sick and depraved, but Tamar, she never went back to her father's place. She stayed in her brother's place. 
I, I, I so much appreciate what Paul said, that he said you have many teachers but few fathers. And the difference between a teacher and a father is a teacher wants to correct you when you make a mistake. But a father doesn't just want to correct you, a healthy father anyway. He doesn't want to correct you, but his goal is that you would do better at life than he himself has done. And we have a lot of brothers in ministry that sometimes will use you to, g- to gain their vision or they see you as a, an anointed tool, anointed vessel. How can you help things get along? But that's different from a father. A father, yes, wants to see you come into your gifting potential, but not to use you, but so you can come into the destiny and the purposes of the father in your life. And Tamar, she tore her clothes, meaning her purity was gone. And she poured ashes on her head, meaning her identity, her healthy self-identity was just burnt away. It was destroyed. But isn't it incredible, this promise Isaiah gave us, that God wants to give us beauty for ashes. The tragedy here is not just what happened to Tamar, but the tragedy is she never went back to her father's house. She remained desolate in her brother's house. And not just people, again, who don't know Christ, but I see even many people in the body of Christ, and we talk about, you know, waking up from a victim mentality. But it's not just waking up to the cold, hard truth that we're a new creature in Christ Jesus, but it's waking up to the fact that you are now a son or daughter who's loved by the Father. You are the apple of your heavenly Father's eyes. And he loves you so much that he gave his very best. He sent Jesus for you and I. And I love what Paul said in Romans 8 that there's absolutely nothing now that can separate us from the love of the Father. And God, after giving us Jesus, there's no other need you will ever have that compares to that. There's no other need you will ever have that compares to that. Now, in contrast to the story of Tamar, I want to tell you a different story that has a much more happy ending. This is something you're very familiar with. And uh, I'm not going to read from it, but you can read the story later on if you want in Luke chapter 15. It's a story of what's commonly called the prodigal son. But actually, I believe that's misnamed. The word prodigal is actually not in the original language. It's a Latin term, and it means to be extravagant as in wasteful. And they called the son the prodigal, prodigal son because he took his half of the fortune and he just wasted it. But I think it'd be more correct, as we go on with the story, to call the father a prodigal father because he was just so extravagant in his love for his son. And actually, of all the parables Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son is the most reflective of the father's heart and the father's redemptive purposes. (coughs) Most of you know this story that a very wealthy uh, father, uh, multinational corporations, you know, and everything at his disposal had two sons. One son was about 26, 28 years old, and he'd gotten a degree from Harvard and Yale, and, you know, he was just on it business-wise, and he was always working. Even when he came home from the office, he'd get on his notebook computer and be checking out the stock market in Tokyo and everywhere else. 
He was just on it, on it, on it, on it. He was a workaholic. We call him a visionary. <laughs> the younger brother, who was maybe about, you know, 18, he looked at all the family fortune they had, everything, and he said, you know, my father worked so hard. My older brother worked so hard. Why? We've got everything we need. And so he goes to his father and he says, Father, would you give me my half of the inheritance now? And in the Hebrew culture, you would never get your inheritance until your father died. And basically what he's saying to the father is, to me, you're as good as dead. Now, <clears throat> there are no Christians that have harsh thinking about God the Father, but there are many Christians that kind of, so to speak, keep God the Father at arm's length. And oftentimes it's because we may have grown up with abuse, or we may have grown up with a father that demanded perfection of us, or whatever it may have been, or emotionally absent father. We know Jesus loves us, we know Jesus has given everything for us, and we're coming into the revelation, the Holy Spirit's pretty cool, he's a good guy, so we want his presence. But God the Father, the throne of the Trinity, you know, that, that can be a little bit intimidating. Well, is he just waiting to judge me? Is he just waiting to slap me beside the head if I don't perform? But the Father is just so kind in his intentions. He loves you and I so much that he gave his very best for us, John 3.16. But the problem is that just like many Christians do not really understand the heart of the Father, the prodigal son, the younger brother, did not know his father's heart either. And so to him, the father was as good as dead. So he said, would you give me my half an inheritance? So he took his half of the money, and he moved to the south of France, you know, and you know, bought a mansion, got involved in gambling and all sorts of things. And within several years, he'd lost this, his whole fortune. And he can't even work now. He can't, doesn't have any job skills, you know. He's about to starve to death. But when you read this account, it says something key. It says he came to his senses. He came to his senses. God has given us in the Spirit eyes to see, ears to hear. And he's given, as I spoken about last night, the mystery of Christ within us. That when we take time to read his word, to meditate upon him, to pray to him, to worship him, the eyes of our heart and the ears of our heart, so to speak, get opened up. Jesus said to all the seven churches in Revelation, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. The rational mind, which oftentimes is so entrenched in the value system of the philosophies and cultures around us, is oftentimes alien to the reality of God and his goodness, increasingly so in our Western world culture. But your spiritual senses, if we'll allow them to, as we spend time with God, reading his words, waiting upon him, worshiping him, we can, so to speak, come to our senses and grow deeper and deeper in relationship with the Father. I like this worship leader. I'm just going to focus on him. You people over here, you're, you're kind of in, the, I don't know, the, the never, never lands there. But uh, he came to his senses and he said to himself, you know, even the, the people that work in the factories of my father are better off than I am. And he said, there's no way the father will allow me to be a son again. <coughs> Excuse me. But he said, maybe the father will receive me and just give me a job so I don't starve to death. 
And it says that he went on this long journey, and now he's walking across the fields, the property that belonged to the father. And you can imagine, maybe the father had this huge mansion, gated mansion with fields going everywhere, expensive lawns and all of this. And the father's out one morning, you know, just taking in the nice sunny weather that you have here about three days a year, you know, and all of a sudden he looks across the fields and he sees his son. His son is in tatters, his shoes are worn out, his clothes are torn, he's bedraggled. And the father did not stand there tapping his foot, arms crossed, ready to chew him out, saying, what do you want? You've blown it. You're out of here. He did something that in the Hebrew culture a grown man would never do, except in a time of war and a fight. He ran to embrace his son. Because for a Hebrew man to run, because they wore robes, he would have to literally roll up or hold up his robe. And it was embarrassing. Everybody would see a Superman underwear, you know. That's why it talks about in the Psalms, you know, gird your loins, roll up your robe, it's time to go to war here. But he did something that a grown man would never do in that culture, something a little bit humbling. He went running across the fields, and he embraced his son. His son did not even have time to try out the scams, the lines he'd prepared for his father. His father embraced him. And it says that he saw his shoes, and he put new, new shoes upon his feet. His feet, shoes were in tatters. And this is symbolic of we have a new freedom to walk in the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he also saw his clothes were torn, and he put a new jacket on him, like an Armani, you know, his very best jacket. And this is symbolic of when we come to Christ, we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That when the Father sees us, he doesn't see us with all of our foibles and, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies, but he sees us in the righteousness and the beauty of Christ Jesus. But the last thing he gave him, he put a ring on his finger. And this was not just a decorative ring, but rings in those days, especially of someone in authority or someone wealthy, it meant you had power to buy things, to order things, to give servants orders as well. Our ring of authority is the name of Jesus. That as we pray to the Father, we have access to the Father's banqueting table and all the care that he had for him. And so the Father began to prepare this celebration that his son, who was lost, had come home. So they've got the band. They've got servants walking around with lobster and caviar and champagne. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. We're in church. But anyway, they're having this great old celebration, and the brother comes home from putting in his 12-hour day at the office, you know, and he sees this party going on, and he's saying, I didn't know there was going to be a party. What's the party? And one of the servants said, your brother, he's returned. And the, the older brother, he's just furious about this. He said, what? He's brought shame on the family name. He's squandered half the family fortune, and the father has deceived him back. And the older brother refuses to go into the party. And his son, father comes out and says, my son, come in. We're celebrating. He says, how could you receive this guy back again? He's brought shame upon us. He's wasted so much of our fortune. But the father said, my son, your brother was lost, but now he's found. We have to celebrate. 
But you see, that wasn't really the issue with the older brother. The issue was not so much that the younger brother had been received, but that he himself did not understand the father's heart. And he said, listen, I've been working hard all these years, but I've never had a party with my friends. And the father looked at him, and he said to him in Luke 15, verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, it wasn't just the younger brother that had what we could call an orphan spirit. It was the older brother as well. Because he thought he could only enjoy what he achieved, what he worked for. And I see many Christians locked up in this. If I work really hard, you know, if I pray 23 hours a day, if I go to every meeting, if I do this and do that, then God will bless me. Well, there is a lot of reality to God wanting to us to walk in what's fruitful and good and to lay down our lives, but never to earn anything. Paul said one of the most important things and one of the most important chapters, one of the most important books of all the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he said, God has not given us a spirit of slavery, taking us back into fear again, meaning we need to con- when you spend six years in Canada, you learn to say again rather than again. But God has not given us a spirit of slavery, taking us back into fear, where we constantly need to worry about our performance. Have we done everything perfectly? But Paul said, in contrast to that, God has given us the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, by which we can call out, Abba, Father. You know how David said in the Psalms that God wants to set a banqueting table for you, even in the midst of your enemy? If you have given your life to Christ Jesus, if you've come into the family of God, there is a seat at the Father's banqueting table just for you. Nobody can take that away from you. You're not on the outside looking in. You're not wondering, is everybody else going to get the best parts or the best blessings? But you have been born again as a son or daughter. I want to tell one more story that actually happened in Toronto, in Canada. This was in Peterborough about two hours, I think, east of Toronto. And we were doing a conference there a number of years ago, and uh, they advertised that conference, the newspaper. And there was a lady by the name of Lisa who had a, a single mom who had a son named Ryan. He was about 17 at the time. They went to a different church. In fact, Ryan uh, hadn't gone to church in years. When Ryan was about 13 years old, her, his father, who proclaimed to be a Christian, walked away from him and his mother for another woman. And uh, Ryan just, you know, walked away from God, got angry, bitter. And now at 17, 18 years old, he's starting to get into some petty crime, a lot of disobedience with his mom. And his mom is thoroughly frustrated with him. And she's uh, come close to kicking him out of the house several times, which, uh, especially in the wintertime in Ontario, is no laughing matter. Well, you would know that here, too. And... uh, Lisa read about this conference, this prophetic conference. She said, I'm going to the conference. And she said, Ryan, you're going with me. And he said, I'm not going to any church conference. And she said, if you don't, I'm kicking you out of the house. Okay, I'll go. So very reluctantly, he goes with her. And on top of that, she makes him sit with her on the second row, you know, right up front. And I had never noticed it, but they told me afterwards that Ryan sat there the whole time, just angry, you know, uptight, arms folded, the whole thing. 
And about a month before this, Ryan had had a, a weightlifting accident and really messed up his neck and shoulder. And he'd been unable to turn his head, I think, to the right for uh, you know about a month now. And he had just been to the chiropractor who had done x-rays and said, you know, we're going to have to do therapy for about 30 days before you're going to be a movement back. And so his shoulder's stuck up. He can't turn his head. He's just in constant pain. And he's sitting there in this church service he doesn't want to be at. And he's just kind of mocking people, worshiping God, and, you know, just uh, quiet in his heart, laughing at people and everything. And then once you know it, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge to pray for people with shoulder problems. And he said, right, there is no God, and even if there is a God, he's not going to heal these people. And he's watching people who came forward, getting prayer, being touched by the Holy Spirit, just in his heart mocking them. But then the Lord gave me a follow-up word, and I said, there's somebody here with a really messed up shoulder. You should have come forward for prayer, but you didn't. And I said, God is bigger than your problems, and just right where you're sitting at, just hold your hands out to the Lord, and the Lord will meet you right now. So now Ryan's beginning to think, what's going on here? He looks around to make sure no one's looking at him, and then not holding his hands like this. He kind of, in his lap, just holds his hands like that. And as soon as he did that, instantaneously, his neck and shoulder were healed. All the pain's gone. His shoulder relaxed. He could drop it. He could turn his head. So obviously he's realizing, number one, there is a God, and that God is a good God. He gave his life to the Lord Jesus that night and got filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we're doing a lot of ministry. It's about 11 o'clock at night. Things are winding down. His mom, Lisa, wants to go home. She can't find Ryan anywhere in the sanctuary. She's just overwhelmed because she, know he, she knows he got healed, but more importantly, she knows he gave his life to Christ. But she can't find him anywhere. She goes out to the car. He's not there. Goes back in the sanctuary, and the church looks over. He's not there. Goes out in the parking lot, and they had a parking lot kind of like yours, dirt and gravel. And over in the side, she hears a bunch of teenagers praying in tongues, and she thinks, well, surely Ryan's not going to be with them. And um, she sees in the midst of these teenagers a pair of legs sticking up in the air with a brand-new pair of white Nikes. She had just two days before brought, bought Ryan a brand-new pair of white Nikes. She, she walks over there, and there's L- L- Ryan laying on his ground, both his feet sticking up in the air, overwhelmed by the Spirit, speaking in tongues. What had happened was some of the teenagers from the church who had never seen Ryan before, they saw him come forward to give his life to Christ. So they talked to him afterwards and said, Are you filled with the Spirit? And he said, Well, what does that mean? And so they said, well, can we pray for you that God would just fill you with his goodness? So they did that, and Ryan started speaking in tongues out in the parking lot and collapsed on the dirt. So they get him in the car, and the whole ride home, he's got his hands up, and he's speaking in tongues. And his mom's thinking, wow, what a night. But she didn't know, but the night wasn't over yet. Uh, Ryan got home, and his mom was actually uh, not in the master bedroom. She was staying in one of the bedrooms downstairs in this two-story apartment because she was trying to keep Ryan from sneaking out at night. But every half hour or so, Ryan is knocking her door throughout the whole night because he got home, he found a, a Bible, and he started reading it. And every half hour, he's coming down telling his mom all the things Jesus is saying to him. So it's now about 10 o'clock in the morning. She's maybe had two hours sleep. She's worn out. She's happy, but, you know, a bit exhausted from this night. 
She goes down the kitchen, and there's a big, hefty garbage bag with all the porno mags that she didn't know Ryan had that he's throwing away. And uh, that was about four or five years ago. Ryan went on to finish school. He went to um, ministry school, seminary, and now he's an associate pastor, a youth pastor at church in Scarborough in Toronto, Canada. And his whole life got turned around that night, even though he had such a bad image of God and God the Father. His whole life got turned around just one touch of the Father's love. And you see, the tragedy with Tamar is not just that her purity and her innocence was stolen from her, but she never went back to the Father's house where that could have taken place. She never went back to the king. The heart of the Father is to bring us back to him so that he can repristinate us, bring us back to the place of beauty and purity that he created in his image. And it's true that when we have memories of past things, especially addictions and things like that, those memories will stay there. But the reality is, as we start walking in the freedom of God's word, his spirit, they have less and less and less pull over our lives. And we're free to break loose of that orphan spirit. We're free to live open-handed. We're free to not only receive love, but we're free to, to give love. We're free not only to truly receive friendship, but to give friendship. And that insecurity of always feeling outside looking in, that is broken off because we realize we have a place at the Father's banqueting table. This is the relationship that Jesus came to give us. Not just so we could stand up in a meeting saying, Hallelujah, I'm going to heaven someday. But as Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that, Father, they might know you. Let's stand. Let's just uh, close our eyes. And if you're with a family member or a friend and it's not too religious or too hokey, join a hand with them right now. I want to lead you in a prayer. Just close your eyes and would you pray out loud after me. Father God, despite whatever modeling I may have had, I say today, you are a good, good God. You love me so much. You've given me your very best. You've given me Jesus. You are a good, good Father. You created me in your image with great intentionality. You created me, and then you sent Jesus for me that I might have life abundantly. Father, I know there's areas in my life that the enemy has stolen from me. Areas he has deceived me. And I tell you today, I want more of you, Father. I want to know your love. I want to know your ways. I want to know your voice. I want to know your heartbeat. And I just thank you that you are watching over me. You know my days before any one of them began. You know the plans you have for me to give me a hope, to give me a future. 
to bless me more than I can ever understand. Just close your eyes and let the Spirit of God rest upon you right now. Just let the Spirit of God rest upon you right now. Let's just keep our focus on the Lord. And I want to do one main thing here in ministry before I turn things back over to Mark. If you have grown up without a father or maybe without a mother, if you have maybe grown up with an abusive parent, maybe they were emotionally abusive physically or maybe even sexually, or maybe, you know, you grew up an orphan, Or maybe, you know, just for whatever reason, because of the hurts of life, you're always wondering, does the Father really love me, care for me? If you know in your heart of heart you need a revelation today of the Father's love, not just for everybody else, not just the theology of it, but his personal love for you, I want to ask you this, to forget about everybody else and just come to the front right now. Just come to the front of the room right now. I want to pray with you. I'm going to wait a few moments. I believe there's a few more of you. You know you want to come up here and need to come up here. So here's what I'd like to do. Because we are a family, we're a community. If one of the people who came up here is a friend of yours and you're a Christian, just come stand behind them and put a hand upon their shoulders. And those of you who came forward, but... But I, I don't really want you to hug them or anything. Just put a hand upon their shoulders. Just let them know you're there. But I want them to mainly be receiving from the Father right now. Right now, they don't so much need our emotions, our sympathy. We just want to know that they're standing with us. They need a revelation of the Father's love for them. So those of you who came forward, hold your hands out to the Lord right now. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for every single person who came forward and for some of those who should have come forward, but maybe they were, for whatever reason, afraid to, I ask in the name of Jesus, would you begin to, by your Holy Spirit, fill them up with a revelation of your love for them. Not your love for anybody else, but your Father's heart for them. I speak a release of the Holy Spirit upon you right now. Just take in the Holy Spirit. I speak a release of the Father's delight in you, His joy in you. He has taken you out of judgment and into His family. The Father delights in you more than any father or mother could ever delight in their own children. He delights in you. I bless your heart right now to be filled with the revelation that God Almighty, God the Father, He delights in you. You are the apple of your Heavenly Father's eyes.
Father, we want to thank you for the transforming power of your love. God, I pray, as Paul prayed in Ephesians, that the, the depth, the width, the height, the magnitude of the love, God, that is beyond comprehension, God, that we would experience it. Father, pour it out. <laughs> Continue to pour it out. Lord, maybe wave after wave, may the billows of the deep love. God, let it fall on us. Let it follow us wherever we go. If you need to go, please feel free to be dismissed. If you, but if you feel you want to stay, just linger in the continuing presence of God and Continue praying and ministering as God's doing something deep on this Father's Day. Be blessed with the Father's love.